Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. My name is Stephanie, and I am a recovered alcoholic on staff at the Magdalene House. Each week, I have the pleasure of conducting a live interview with an alcoholic woman in recovery for the participants who are currently in our Next Step program. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. All right, so today we have Megan, who I have seen in the program for quite a while now. And I see her because she's active. And so that's one of the um, questions that you all get asked in accountability every week is, how are you being an active member? You know, what are you doing to be an active member? And so it just so happens that our guest on is such a great example of that. And so how fitting that that's one of the areas that uh, we're focusing on. So... Megan, I'm going to, the question that we always start with is if you could just give the ladies and the listeners a little bit of background information about yourself to qualify yourself for the women and to what led you to get sober. Okay, sure. Um, Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for um, asking me to do this and to be of service. I'm a little nervous, but um, I'm excited. I'm excited to be here and answer questions and, um, I guess to qualify, um, goodness gracious, I started drinking when I was 12, 13 years old. And I was a person that could drink and have a good time. And um, it was okay for a while. Um, it was okay until it, until it wasn't. But that didn't, that didn't put any reservations or breaks on. And the sad thing is, is that I knew better because of my childhood, the way that I was brought up, the way that I was raised, the way that my parents drank. I watched them struggle with uh, addiction. Uh, I watched both of them pass away from their addictions, and um, it didn't. It didn't matter. What I've learned from this program is that what qualifies me as an alcoholic is that when I put alcohol in my system, I can't stop, and that I had no, I had no defense against the first drink. I didn't know how to not drink. I tried. I tried all the ways that the book tells us about but I just, I just couldn't stop. And it took a, it took a moment of losing my mom and assaulting the spouse that I was with at the time to kind of give me a, maybe, maybe somebody's right about my drinking. Maybe I do have a problem. How do I look at that? So ultimately I came in to really get questions answered for myself of like, how do I find out whether or not I'm an alcoholic? Because some people say that I am. And most of the people that I hang out with drink and party the way that I do. Um, and I still function. So I, I really came in asking and I really got well-informed. Um, I had people break things down for me and ask me questions and walk me through history. Thank you. Um, what I think something that's really cool and interesting about your story is that you did not go to treatment and that you got sober in the rooms. And that's another reason why I pushed being active and a home group member and all that so hard on the ladies is because your story isn't unique. You're not the only one who gets sober in the rooms, but I would love it if you would talk to us about your experience getting sober in the rooms. Okay. Yeah, I haven't ever been to treatment. Um, I watched my mom bounce in and out of treatments. So detox, stuff like that, just isn't a part of my story. Um, when I got to my home group, which is Belmont and Garland, um, getting into service is pretty easy there because it's really small. And so there's not a lot of people. And so they need somebody to fill in the gaps for chairing meetings and for being a trusted servant um, and for making coffee and for taking out the trash. And I'll be real honest. When I first got sober, I kind of went 
straight from work to my group. So I may have gotten there even an hour early because I was too scared to go home. And so getting there early, you can find productive ways to, to keep yourself busy while you're waiting for a meeting, or you can not find productive things to do. And so I, you know, I would look around and say, oh, well, this could use a little work or, you know, and I'd ask, you know, can I help with this and can I help with that? And when you do that in the rooms of AA, people tend to cling to that because so many people um, unfortunately just aren't willing or, or don't ask to do service work. And so they snatched me up pretty quickly and got me chairing meetings, I think 30 days in and six months into my sobriety, I, uh, I, I wanted to help with the trusted servants. I wanted to, I wanted to be the GSR is what I wanted. I had heard about the description of GSR and I was like, Ooh, that sounds fun. And they get to go around and they were like, no, 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 you need to do something a little bit, a little bit slower. Um, can you tell us what a GSR is? a general service representative. So it's the representative of the group that um, goes to the district meetings, listens to what's going on in the meeting and carries that information back to the group. So it kind of trickles down from area, world service, and then down to district. So district is above the, below the groups, however you want to look at it um, on that service triangle. And uh, that's my position now. So Three and a half years in, I, I finally got to do that position. But the first position that I picked up was programmer. And that's the person that gets to go out and find the speakers for the group. And that was really fun because I already was hopping around to other groups, listening to other people. And then I got to talk to even more people and say, hey, I really I really like what you shared. Would you be willing to come to the group and share your um, experience, strength, and hope? So that was my first big position, I felt like, of responsibility for my home group. I think I mentioned to you the other day that one of the other big things that kicked off my love for service was going to a, a convention. Somebody told me about Gathering of the Eagles and I was like, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to figure out how to get there. And um, I signed up on the bottom of the sheet. Almost any convention that you go to, you can check the option to be a volunteer. And they had me just stand at the door and greet people. So I'm having to look people in the eye, which I don't know how to do, right? And, and tell these people how to get to the registration table or wherever it is that they need to go. And I was very intimidated um, because I was so unhealthy and I was so <sighs> broken that trying to look people in the eye and greet them was, was hard, but it was also inspiring. It also helped build up some confidence, but some, that, some faith that maybe, maybe I'm supposed to be here and that it's okay to be around these people because they're just like me. Yeah. Can you talk about uh, your experience as a newcomer and like, because I remember you talking about, you know, being, you being approached by who would be your sponsor. Can, so can you talk about the other side of that, like as a newcomer and what the group did for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I remember my first day, um, everybody just being so warm and welcoming in Belmont is very small. So if you're new, we know it. Um, so we have no trouble finding the newcomer. They welcomed me. They helped explain things that I wasn't sure about. I had lots of questions and I was too scared to ask them and they could see it written all over my face. And I had heard about this sponsor thing and I was like, yeah, I don't need one of those. I'm just fine, right? While I'm sitting in a chair full of tears every single meeting that I'm at because losing my mom a month before I got sober and my spouse leaving 10 or 15 days before I got sober, I was shattered. And, um, this lady, Angela, she, she kept seeing, <laughs> she kept seeing me in these meetings and crying and, and she just came up to me and asked me, um, have you gotten a big book? And I said, yes, because somebody had bought me a big book. Somebody had bought me a big book and given it to me. Then she asked me if I'd gotten a sponsor and I just, I was too scared to ask anybody. I didn't think that it would work. I didn't think that I was worthy. And she said, well, I'll be, I'll be your temporary sponsor. She had never sponsored anybody before. So she called her sponsor, got some directions. She'd been sober about three or four years. And she was, she was madly passionate about, she is madly passionate about this program. I mean, she yell and holler and beat on the table. She just got excited about her recovery. And she more or less uh, hijacked me and said, all right, I'm taking you under my wing and I, uh, I owe a debt 
of gratitude to her for that. I love it because I hope that what the participants are hearing is the importance of being that loving hand to the new women coming in and how important that is because you know you were broken and you were sad and you needed somebody to approach you and to like take and to take you under under their wing and so i just think that i love that because i think that that is so important that when we go to our groups that we remember that part of it you know yeah i think it's important to you know approach anybody you know i go to my home group now twice a week. So I don't know everybody anymore. I don't, I don't have everybody networked in like I did when I went every day, twice a day. And so if I see somebody new, whether that's their first day or not, I think it's important to say hello to them and introduce myself and shake their hand. And if they'll let me give them a hug, it's a little hard right now, but, um, and, and yes, bring them in, bring them in and make them feel like they're supposed to be there. How long did it take for you before you felt like, a part of and like you were supposed to be there not very long I want to say uh, a month maybe you know it's so foggy um but I'd say about then you know because I think about a month in I remember sitting there and just laughing and kind of doing what most people do and go wait a minute that feels different you know I haven't felt this in a long time um to smile and feel comfortable and like I'm supposed to be there and not like um my skin is coming off trying to get to stay in that seat and not run out the door. I think something else that I think is important to touch on is you talked about, you know, seeing both of your parents die from this disease Mm -hmm. and that not being enough. And then what I also think is cool is you also, you have experience of being daughter of an alcoholic but you also have the experience of being an alcoholic mother yeah and so I would love it if you would share your experience on the daughter side first as growing up with uh with alcoholic parents if you don't mind I think I had mentioned to you that life was normal for a little while. So my parents drank and they, they may have partied, but they did it away from us kids. So I didn't really get to see the full blowout of their alcoholism until I was like eight, somewhere between eight and 10 years old. So at first, what I saw of my parents was loving and protective and uh, disciplined and strict. And when the alcoholism took over in a bigger sense, what I saw was destruction and uh, no discipline and no love and no guidance or support, a lot of neglect. And so I became very resentful um, towards the people that were raising me and that, that I had looked up to and that I had admired. And uh, I felt very scared. I, I don't, I don't remember being a child and feeling uncomfortable in my skin. When I was little, little, I remember being comfortable and safe and that cha- and that changed. And I hear a lot of people say in the rooms that they've always felt that way. They've always felt uncomfortable or uh, unsafe or uh, like they don't belong. I didn't feel that. I didn't feel that until things hit the fan. And then when that happened, it was it was survival mode. Um, It was survival mode of um, what am I going to go home to? What is this going to look like? When are the cops going to show up? Are we going to eat? Do, do I need to take care of things? And I quickly became, I'm the oldest of three uh, kids and I quickly became the, the parent. I quickly became the parent taking care of them and making sure that they were safe. And when the craziness, the chaos, the destruction, the, violence would happen. You know, I'm, I was the parent at eight or nine years old. Um, so to say that I was resentful towards them and not understand why they did these things, why they changed, why they couldn't stop, why we weren't important enough. 
um, I was definitely angry. I was angry and I was scared. I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Kimala. I, well, how you say it? Well, I understand when you say that you had a parent, um, my mom and dad were alcoholics and addicts and me working my fourth step is a lot of, like you said, uh, resentments on there. So, and also my parents have died from it. You know, um, my mom was the last, she, I just lost her like I remember that. four years ago. So when those times come, like her birthday just passed in January, you know, um, but anyway, I wanted to know like, how long did you take to understand the, the addiction that how, how it takes a hold of you and you have no control and be able to have empathy and compassion for your parents. How long did that take? If I can ask that. Uh, I'll be honest. Um, for the most part that has been forgiven and understood. And it did take a lot of work. My first fourth and fifth step um, consumed uh, pages and pages of my mom and, yeah. that, and that spouse that left. Right. And luckily I had a sponsor that could help me walk through the truth in that, help me look at my part, what wasn't my part, just my presence. But if we, if we pay attention to this program and we really read through this book and we do the step work, we learn that we have a disease. So if I can come in this program and show compassion and love and forgiveness to all these other people, why can't I give it to her? Why is it any different just because she's my mom? Well, it isn't. It isn't, it just feels a little different because you're a little closer, you're a lot closer, right? Why did this happen to her? Why did she change? Like I said, I had some normalcy. I had a person that gave me everything and that, that addiction wasn't taken over. The hooks weren't in that deep yet. To, to honestly answer your question, for the most part, I'm okay today. It took a year or two and there's still some healing in that. But I dig in other fellowships too. I dig in ACA. I dig in Al-Anon. Like, I do lots of um, digging to try to figure out how free can I be because... Yeah that stuff took over my life for a really long time. Um, but you aren't alone in that. So walking through the program of AA to look at your own addiction is great, but other fellowships and other books and other forms of healing, um, people have given me their own just personal experiences. I have a, I have a pamphlet where I write to my parents every once in a while so that I can talk to them because I miss them. I'm 34 years old. They're not here. My son just turned 16. They're not here. They're supposed to be here. My siblings are both younger than me. They're supposed to be here. They were both 60 when they died, 60, 61. That's too young. So it takes time, but I don't think that it's impossible. But does it completely go away? No, there's still some moments where I kick and scream and go, WTF, why aren't you here? So I want to ask one more question, um, you know, and I see that you said that you put yourself in to be of service and I'm kind of like, do these people like me or am I the right type? Want to be accepted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you ever felt that way, what did you do? Well, first and foremost, you know, you hear people say, look at this, look for the similarities, right? Figure out a way to bind yourself to these people, right? And vulnerability is a bitch but it, it allows you to come in and, and bond with these people. So tell these people where you came from, what you look like. Uh, before I realized what the safer way to share and wasn't to share in a room um, so that I could keep my share solution based, I told all the crazy stuff that I did. And I really thought these people were gonna tell me to get out, you know? And they didn't, if anything, they pulled me in closer. So vulnerability helps with that. Um, you know, I get that. My brother and sister are pretty much the only family that I have my aunt here and I have a couple cousins here. Most of them are drowning in their addictions. My brother's sitting in prison right now. My brother isn't speaking to me while he's sitting in prison because it's my fault that he's in prison, right? And it, it does take time to trust people, but there's no difference in, in, in my experience of the people that are in the rooms and outside the rooms, right? We're all just people if we're deceitful or harmful, I, I don't think it's usually malicious. Um, I think people just do the best that they can. And if, if I want to receive grace, then I have to give as much grace that I can muster out of my soul. And sometimes I can't muster very much. 
but I try to not take things personally and remember that that people are human. So it just it just takes a little bit of time. Um, I think that's with anything. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, I think something else that is cool that came out of this is you had a conversation with your mom's sponsor because she had, she did have a little bit of sobriety at one point. Mm -hmm. Do you mind sharing about that? Sure. Um, I'd gone to my aunt's that lives in, in Fort Worth and just talking. And when I get to see her and we, we talk in person, we always talk about my mom because that was her sister and she misses her too. And I, I sometimes forget that that's her sister and I can't imagine losing my sister, right? But I also get a, a little piece of my mom too when I sit down with, with my aunts. And um, she was asking how I was doing and I always just ramble and tell her, I wanna tell her everything, you know, everything that I do. And um, I, I remember asking her like, why didn't mom stay sober? Like. She's been in and out, in and out, but she, this last bout of sobriety, she had almost two years. She was doing really good. Why, why didn't she make it? What? And she said, I really don't know. I don't know how the program works. She said, I know about the steps and your mom would talk to me about some of the stuff. And my aunts being sign language interpreters, they have interpreted a lot of um, AA meetings for deaf people, but, but interpreting a program and being in the program are, are two different things. The interpretation is very different. And she said, why don't you reach out to her sponsor? And I said, I don't know who her sponsor is. And she said, well, I do. And so I called this, I called this, well, I messaged her on Facebook and asked her if she'd be willing to talk to me because I wasn't sure what things she could and couldn't share with me. If there were limitations, if there was, you know, just trying, her trying to keep from being harmful, telling me anything, you know, my mom was such an open book that generally if you asked her a question, she was going to tell you everything. And so I called this lady and I told her um, that I was now in the program and that I had some questions and I wanted to be able to piece things together. Um, so first and foremost, I think that if you're willing to try to find the answers, even if you don't want them, the truth, maybe not the answers, the truth, um, there's lots of healing in that. And so she was able to tell me that her fourth and fifth step, she struggled and, and she, she kicked and screamed. But when she got to step nine, there just wasn't enough willingness there wasn't enough willingness to do it. I don't know if that's because of shame. I don't know if that's because of guilt. I don't know if that's because of ego. I don't know why. And I meant to say this earlier, an old sponsor that I had that is now passed um, told me something that I've held on to for a really long time. Mimi said to me, why is not a spiritual question? And I have held on to that for everything that I can. So if I don't get the answers that I think that I need, move on. There's some other way for me to, to figure it out. I had no idea that I was going to get to talk to that lady, but I'm grateful that she took the time to sit down with me and talk to me and still will talk to me if I want to talk to her. And she has almost 40 years in this program. She gave my mom her first big book in the 80s. My mom's been fighting with this disease since the 80s, since I was born, right? My mom didn't start drinking until she was 30. And she died at 60. So... That experience was uh, powerful to say the least. Yeah, hmm, I love that. I love that why is not a spiritual question mm -hmm. because I also struggled with that with you know the loss of, of Isaac. And so I'm so happy that you were able to talk to her and, and talk to us about it and be vulnerable with us and share that, that piece. So thank you. You're welcome. Does anybody have any questions before we move on to the next portion? So now I want to talk to you about the flip side of being an alcoholic mother and mm -hmm. the relationship with your son and, and being on the other side and, and what that was like. That poor kid got introduced to an alcoholic parent from day one. I was talking to a sponsee last night because she shared about drinking in her pregnancy. And 
I've told myself time and time again that I never did that, right? That just because I didn't drink alcoholically, I didn't drink while I was pregnant, but that's not true. Um, there were times where two of my other friends that were also pregnant with me at the same time, we would, you know, justify a bottle of wine because it was the three of us or justify a, 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 a tall boy because it was the three of us. Um, but for the most part, I refrained from drinking. But as soon as I had my son and found out that I couldn't breastfeed, I tried to breastfeed. It didn't work. All bets were off. And I thought I was, I was totally willing to not drink and use. I don't know whether or not that would have worked if I would have actually gotten to breastfeed, but because I couldn't, um, I immediately um, started drinking and using. And so Landon hasn't seen anything but a mom that is full of chaos and drunkenness and partying birthday parties. It was always important to make sure that we get whatever it is that they need to get done. And as soon as they get done, it's our time. We've got the keg, we've got the beer bongs, we've got all of that going on while our kids are running around, toddlers, little babies, infants, the driving around drunk. I never thought that I would do that. I was a, I was Landon's coach for his team, for his soccer team for a little while. And for a while it was well, I can have a drink before I go up there. Nobody will know any different. But eventually, it got to the point where it was okay enough to make that drink and take that drink with me and be two or three drinks in while I'm coaching that team. The yelling, the screaming, the irrational behavior, the, the hangovers, not falling through with keeping my word, all of those things were part of that. I'm really grateful for the program of Alateen because I've gotten to put Landon in the in the middle of that and he was willing to go and to listen and um, do his own healing from the 12 steps which I think is incredible I had no idea such a thing existed that's not true that's a lie my aunt had been telling me all of my childhood um, that I should go to Alateen I don't know that there was one in Waco which is where I'm from but I never did I never I never got into that program but he did so has Landon seen a change in his mom? Has he acknowledged a shift? Does he ever want me to go back? No, but the amount of extremes that Landon saw and experienced, for the most part, he was asleep. For the most part, Landon wasn't aware and probably wasn't aware that I was so drunk and doing the things that I was doing because I was always drunk. So how do you know the difference when your mom's never sober? He didn't go to work with me. That's pretty much the only place you could find me sober. And sometimes not even then. So there's a lot of shame in that as, as there is for anybody, right? Um, but that's just my truth. Can't change it. Now, how is your relationship with him today? <laughs> blessed. Very blessed. You know, we can communicate and lean into a good kid. He he is good in school and he's respectful and I can talk to him about anything. He asked me a really hard question the other day, a really hard question. And I won't share most of that because this is recorded, but ultimately he asked me why there weren't any consequences legally um, with the relationship that was apparent between me and his father because, because of the age gap, there was a nine year age gap and I was a minor. And there's a lot to that story. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that I was able to have Landon ask me that question and give him the best answer that I could give him right then without harming him, without word vomiting and, and, and harming him um, and not hide anything at the same time, if that makes sense. So my relationship today with him is more than I could have ever imagined I was 17 years old when I got pregnant with Landon. I was scared. I didn't know how to be a parent. I had been a parent to my siblings, but not a healthy one. So in the last almost four years, I've gotten to be somewhat present and healthier to Landon. And there aren't enough words. There aren't enough, there isn't enough love in the world to express how much that means to me and to him. I love that so much. Um, did you make an amends to him? I did. 
the amends to, to him was pretty vague because my sponsor made it clear that um, I didn't want to add any, any harm to him. But ultimately, I was to make sure that I, I didn't promise him that I would never drink again because I can't do that. Um, to try to give him assurance that I'm going to do better and try to do better and open the door for him to ask any questions to give him whatever healing that he may need. And that's really an open-ended time frame that doesn't end. So if Landon comes up with some sort of question like he did the other day in the car, I have to be, I want to be open and willing to give him those answers. Um, so it's kind of like my parents, I feel like they're living amends for that. Not because, not because it's a weight on my shoulder, it's just my truth. I don't know how long that's gonna take and I don't need to look for the end of it. It's just what it is. It's just what I have to do. Thank you. Can you touch on, you mentioned the living amends to your parents. Can you elaborate on that? Since they were both gone before you got sober, how were you able to make that amends to them? I think for the most part, it's a, it's a daily reprieve for me, but to kickstart that letters, um, letters to them, I've gotten to take their ashes and spread them together in the lake that they met at and uh, in the Gulf where my mom is from. And, and, and as, as I mentioned before, I, I write to them. Uh, I don't have a schedule when I write to them, but when I feel like I just really need to sit down and talk to them, sitting down with that pen and paper with that notebook that's designated for them helps. I have my dad's ashes I don't have my mom's yet. I, that's a really long story, but, um, you know, I have his ashes and I have both of their little pieces from the memorial service on my dresser. I just talk to him. I just talk to him and I, I carry him with me. And this program has given me two major spiritual experiences, letting me know that they are, um, they are present and they can see and that they um, are proud of me. People, um, colors, smells, uh, experiences, those things, um, not to mention the faces of certain people in these rooms, uh, men and women, healthy men and women. Um, and then just sometimes your story gives me a little bit of uh, acknowledgement that, that I'm doing the best that I can. And that's better than what I was doing before. All right. Now, I know you talked about your fourth and fifth step being very eye-opening. Do you mind elaborating on that experience? Sure. <laughs> Me being the good listener, and that's a lot of sarcasm that I am, I had... I didn't have a sponsor at the time read me through the book when I was going through four and five. They more or less sat down with me and kind of thumbed over the pages and gave me some direction and I misinterpreted it. And so I'm trying to dig through the book on my own and piece it together. But to be completely and utterly honest, I thought that the fourth step was writing down my resentments and my hatred towards everybody that had done me wrong. Right. And you are writing down your resentments. You are writing down your fears and you are writing down some sex inventory. I didn't do that. I took a notebook and I wrote down everybody's name that I could think of that had hurt me, that I was angry with and wrote down all the stuff that they did to me. And I finally did do the columns. Um, and when I sat down with my sponsor that day, um, she had brought lunch and stuff. She was prepared to sit there with me all day. And we sat there for about six hours. The things that were revealed to me in that <laughs> It was a blessing and a curse I felt at the same time. She was telling me the truth while putting a branding iron on my skin, you know, with my truth, marking it all the way down my skin. Um, but it's what I needed to hear because I had such a twisted perception of the truth in writing all those things down um, that she was able to like weed through it and show me like, even though this is what you wrote down, let's walk through this. Let's look at what really happened and take the time 
to relate these things to her experiences and to her lifestyle and make me feel like I'm not an outcast sitting there, right? The biggest thing that I um, was blindsided with was for her to basically tell me that I had become my mother. That hurt. My mother was the person that I had hated the most. That's not an easy thing to say out loud to people um, because you're supposed to love your mother and you're supposed to respect your mother. And um, you're not supposed to say bad things about your mother. But I hated her. And I had done everything that she had done to me. Maybe not on the same scale, but I had done the same thing. And she helped me see that whether I chose to do that or not, that's what I had done. And that she loved me anyway, and that we could work through it and we could get better. And I was so angry. I wanted to just scream at her. Like, how dare you say that? I am nothing like her. And I'm going to tell you ladies something right now. I have never looked in the mirror and seen my mother. And today, I do. I look in the mirror and I see her and I can smile with so much joy in my heart. So even though she's not here, she's right here because I'm a byproduct of her. Which byproduct am I going to be? Which choice am I going to make today? Am I going to resonate the good that I got from her, which there is a lot of good, but I couldn't see it then. Or am I going to, Am I going to glorify all the terrible things that she did and justify it and rationalize it, rationalize that bullshit, which is what I did for f over 15 years. You know, I had to walk through resentments of her and my dad, the resentment list with my dad and my mom was way different though. Like my dad drank and he was an alcoholic and he absolutely died from this disease, but my dad never put us last. We were always first and then he got what he needed later. And what I mean by that is my mom would take the money and the time and the dedication away from us and, and give it all to her. Whereas my dad would make sure that we had what we needed and, and the things that we wanted to do and, and assure us that we were loved no matter what, even though he was drowning in his addiction. And my mom didn't, whether she meant to or not, she didn't. So it was different. So my experience with the fourth and fifth step was blindsiding but healing. And I am learning as, as a huge codependent that just because you don't want to hear the truth from me doesn't mean that I shouldn't say it. Never deprive somebody of their, what is the word I'm looking for? Never deprive someone of their own suffering. And you can't do that if you don't give them their truth for them to look at it. It's a bitch to look in the mirror. And I don't mean look in the mirror and look at my face. I mean, look in the mirror and look at my soul, right? That's not easy, but it's the only way that I've gotten to do that. And to sit across from a woman who had a childhood almost identical to mine with the same name, me and God had a lot of beef when I got here. And that day we had a lot less beef. Oh, I love that so much. I want to ask you, because you, I love how you said that, I forget how you worded it, but basically like, even if you don't want to hear the truth, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't say it. Yeah. Have you struggled with telling sponsees the truth? Oh yeah. You want to share your growth in that? When I first got sober and my sponsor told me, so I'm about nine months sober because I drug out, got steps one, two, and three done pretty quickly, but struggled through the last steps. And uh, when she told me to raise my hand, I said, I'm not even a year sober and I haven't done 10, 11, and 12. What about those? But once I started sponsoring women, I still struggle with codependency. That's another fellowship I'm hanging out in, right? That's four now, right? Telling these, these women the truth, um, I was too scared that they weren't going to like me, that they didn't want to be my friend. And that's not my job. 
with the title of a sponsor. That doesn't mean I can't be their friend. I have some amazing women that I've gotten to work with and watch them grow and they are my best friends. But I remember a girl calling me one time. So I met this girl at a sober living barbecue in Richardson at a sober living house. She came there. She has no idea why she came to this barbecue. Mind you, she came drunk. And uh, we circled up and shared and she proceeded to basically ask for help in a roundabout way. And, and nobody caught that. Nobody caught that she was begging and pleading for somebody to show her how, how do you get sober? Because she attends the church that we went to and they broadcasted this. So I went and spoke to this woman and I had ridden with a friend there. And so I told her, if you want to talk about this any further, and I had no idea she was drunk. I'm a very bad reader of people that are under the influence. Um, I said, you're more than welcome to come to my house tonight and we'll talk about it some more and I'll get you to a meeting. So long story short, this woman eventually asked me to sponsor her because I'm the only person she knows. And we start working through this stuff and she's struggling. But what I can see because things are getting clear and I, I'm accepting of more truth in my life, she starts seeing that she starts doing everything that, she, that we do before we physically relapse. She's finding a reason to relapse. And I thought to myself, I have to tell this girl, you are looking for a reason to drink and you either need to go drink or you need to stop. And I thought, if I tell her this, what if she goes and drinks? right? That's not on me. That's what she's doing. That's the truth. So it's taken time. It's not easy. I still want everybody to like me and I still want everybody to be my friend. Just because somebody likes me doesn't mean that they're my real friend. And it's taken me a little bit of time to see that the real relationships, the bonds that are concreted in indefinitely are the ones that I've been honest with people and I've let them be honest back. And I've taken it and listened to that honesty and not run, right? That's not easy. So it's, it's taken a lot of time growing up as a sponsor, trying to figure out how to do it right in quotations, right? There is no right or wrong way. You just have to get out there and, and get your foot in the door and walk with your sponsor and, and be as transparent as you can. So I think that's, vital for me to meet with my sponsor on a weekly basis. And, and we're reading through new literature now. I actually got a sponsor about two and a half years ago and him and I read every week. We read through the big book. I never had anybody do that with me. We read through the big book. Now we're reading through AA Comes of Age. Um, and I'm able to tell him the truth, the real truth, all of it. And him not judge me and him not shun me and him not tell me I'm stupid. And those are things that you guys have shown me too that I can give to people that I get to sponsor because that's one of my most favorite things is to bond with somebody while you're standing on the verge of death trying to figure out how to just breathe, let alone live. I would love, before I ask the wrap-up question, for you to talk to us about AA Comes of Age. What's been your experience reading that? Have oh, you man. Anything? Do you want to share anything? Yeah. So Bobby and I, we're, <laughs> we're only about a quarter of the way into this book, but I'm, I'm a, a nerd. I'm an AA nerd. I want to know everything and I want, I want to learn it all right now. Um, and I don't have enough time in the world and I'm starting to live a little bit. Um, so I'm trying to find a balance, but reading through that book and looking at how the history tells you how, everything has come along and the experiences that Bill and Bob and Ebby and all these physicians and all of these, all of these alcoholics, period, right? All of these people just like us in, in a vast diversity of lifestyles and where they came from. It, it resonates in my soul in a way that I don't know how to describe really because that's what we're doing right now. We're making history, right? We are living, breathing pages in history because it's not normal for us to not drink. It's normal for us to drink and use. It's normal for us to die 
not sober. Because we have a disease that says that we can't stop obsessing about it. And, and then we get it in our systems and then, and then it just goes and goes. So to hear about these conferences and hearing about how they're starting to tell people about these things and how they're slowly carrying the message from city to city with no technology, right? No technology and, and slowly the patience that they had to have. I want everything right now. And they couldn't do that then. They had to take the time and wait and sit with God and have no idea whether or not it's going to work. That book is incredible. I've heard so many people talk about it and I don't know about you guys, but when I got sober, these books just started appearing. Like I have books all over my house that I still haven't gotten to. Um, but slowly but surely, one sponsor will let me read one with them. My sponsor will read with me. And um, in time, maybe I'll get to read all of them. But right now, um, I am eager to see what the rest of that book tells me because it's pretty incredible. Yay, thank you. One other question, and then I'll ask the wrap-up question. <laughs> what has been, because I think you were just such an amazing example of a solid AA member in all three parts of the triangle. It almost brings me to tears because I'm so happy that these women get to see this example, and I hope it inspires them. So I know that you have definitely seen the fruits of recovery. And uh, I would just like it if you would tell us your favorite thing or the greatest gift that recovery has given you. First and foremost, the, the biggest thing that recovery has given me that I wanted since I was a little kid was a relationship with God. And you know what I did when I got here? Me and God, <laughs> God got a good morning and a big F you every morning with both fingers to walk with God on a daily basis and to the best of my ability, ask for his will and then try to follow it and not care what anybody thinks about it. I've cared about what everybody thinks my whole life to be present as a mother, really want to be present as a mother. It's really hard being a mom, a single mom at 17 that you didn't plan and you didn't ask for, and then to be abandoned by the other parent. Um, unfortunately, Landon was on my resentment list, right? Because he was standing in the way of my drinking and using and living the way that I wanted to live. Whether that was his fault or not, it's my truth. To heal inside and out. And for whatever reason, the willingness that I have been given to share and to um, love inside and outside. <laughs> I remember the first time that I had to tell my story. They asked me six hours prior to the meeting because I was the programmer and the speaker wasn't going to make it. And so I texted the group and said, Hey, we don't have a speaker. And they asked me to speak. I am the child that missed school to go to presentations because I knew that if I missed school, I could do the presentation the next day with the teacher by myself because then nobody would be looking at me and nobody would be listening to me because I didn't have anything to say and I didn't have anything to share. And whether I do or don't today, I have the willingness to get up there and do it because you guys said that I do because I came in and I've qualified and I've done the work and it isn't about me getting up there and carrying a message. It doesn't matter what I look like or what I wear. What it matters is what I'm sharing to that next suffering alcoholic to maybe pull them from the gates of hell from my experience. So I think the other part is, is to be accepting of who I am and not want to change it because not everything that happens in my life is my choice and that doesn't make it right or wrong. It just is. Oh, this has been so powerful. I mean, I feel like 
I really only have seen your actions. I haven't really heard your words very much <laughs> until recently, whenever I heard you speak in a meeting and I was like, oh, this girl's big book. Like I need to get her on here because her words are match up with her actions. And so this has been great. I'm so glad that we got to do this and I'm so happy for the people who are going to get to listen. But my wrap up question is, so also just in case anybody Here's what else, uh, actions speak louder than words, apparently, right? My wrap-up question for you is, if you could leave us or the listeners or the newly sober alcoholic with one takeaway, one last thing that you'd want us to hear, what would that be? If you think that you can't, try. Because we've done everything else. So I think one of the most important things that I get to tell women that, or men, I've worked with men, and it doesn't even matter if I'm working with them or not. If you've come into some sort of fellowship to get help and you haven't finished all 12 steps, don't leave until you do that. Give it a chance to try all of them honestly, right? As honestly as you can be right then. And then if you still need to go, go. And I'm going to love you anyway. And you guys have taught me that. That whether I'm in this program or outside this program or drowning in a hole of misery, love them anyway. Mm, so good, Megan. Thank you so much for being on here with us. This Thank you for, great. for asking me. This was, um, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. You all have a wonderful, wonderful day, and I can't wait to get Thank you, started. Megan. Thank you. Thank you for listening. It's good to see you, Libby. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks. Yeah. Bye. Good to see you too, Kimla. I don't know you other ladies, but hi, nice to see you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenhouse.org.